welcome to On the Line. Wait, I'm Joe Mullings. Joe did the intro, guys. Wait, what does that mean? Oh my God. Well, it means I'm getting a lot. practice. Yeah, good. You got to start. Today's okay. the day. Today's the day. We're going to be able to take everything out of our mm, sort of theoretical realm mm-hmm. based on all my experiences and go to a lab today and tell us why. Um, I am making a career change. I'm going to go back to school to kind of take a career I already have, but in a new direction, less creative and more uh, theoretical and sort of more academic. Um, I'm going to go to the University of Amsterdam to study uh, preservation and presentation of the moving image, so kind of archival museum work. So I'd like, is it, is it celluloid? A lot of it will be. It's all moving image materials, so there's plenty of digital stuff. Digital is actually not archivable. Uh, in fact, a lot of films, like big films, are. we were just talking about this with our professor when we were in Boston for a client. We met up with our professor there, and uh, she was saying that her husband is the head of acquisitions at the Harvard... Uh, film Archive? Film, sorry, oh my God, I just blanked. At the Har- F- H- I was thinking HFA, Harvard Film Archive. Um, which is an amazing archive and, and one of my favorite in the world. And so they know a thing or two about preservation. He was saying, you know, she should she should start transferring her her digital films to a 35 millimeter print. That's what they do because it's 35 millimeter is really the only archival process we kind of have. That's mm. if you store prints correctly, they'll stay forever. But uh, digital, right? It does. Know, it has. It, it does fail. have a, a sort of a shelf life on it, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It's really crazy. Eventually, mm-hmm. all this stuff. And and the craziest part is. We're making a lot of media, the whole world, every day, all the time, and there's really no process in place to archive all of this. It's really weird. They can make a straw that lasts for, lasts forever, right? But not digital. <laughs> no, right? Because hard drives they're fallible, right? And and clouds they're not unlimited. You know, we think about like, oh, Instagram is this unlimited database, mm. but eventually Instagram could potentially get full mm. and have to archive. So you're going to be doing, what are, you, what are you going to be studying? And then I'll dig into your career move. Um, like, what, is it, what does it look like? What's a week in the, in the life of... Well, European schools are really different. Mm. So actually, literally every week is different. It's not like in America where you have a class that you go to for six months, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, from this time to this time. It's more seminar-based. So this week you're doing this kind of block, and this next week you're on location at a museum. So it's a lot more um, hands-on, maybe a little more interactive than, than American classes are. But a typical week will involve a lot of interacting with this place there called the uh, iFilm Museum. It's a place uh, kind of unlike any other. It's a, a museum devoted entirely to film and the moving image. Um, so a lot of the work I'll do is either hands-on restoring and mm-hmm. and archiving with the white material. gloves on yeah yeah yeah, totally in the, the thing and the clip and you clip the thing down you put the glue on it yeah which i've already done because that's how I, I learned how to do film mm-hmm. uh as a freshman it was all 16 millimeter mm-hmm. we weren't even allowed to use computers my freshman year which was kind of cool um well, that was the, that was the 1940s yeah i'm really it's like i said earlier about the whole old no i mean this wasn't even that long ago it was 2005 i but anyway it was cool but and then the other half is is working on 
how to curate this stuff and, and show it to the public and engage the public mm-hmm. and how to curate and program um, films together so that you have kind of a messaging and a, it's educational. It, it's kind of a weird uh, way to take my background in film production and apply that to the restoration part and then my back, back, background in education and apply that to the programming part. So as a recruiter now, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to, so I'm going to go through your resume with you, sort of, kind of, but backwards. Sure. So uh, you made a couple career moves, right? Yeah, right? more so, than most people Yes, probably. right. So w- what do you think about on these career moves? Hmm. Is it moving away from, moving towards? Is it a combo? Um, you know, it's ironic. When I started my career seriously, I landed like a perfect job. I was just teaching all the time. I taught in different places in New York City. And I taught at one insti- like university. Uh, and then I taught at a high school and then I taught like an outreach program and they were each rewarding in their own way. But education's a really difficult career to sustain. I've heard we, that before from a lot of people. It's tough. If you teach in high school, you're underpaid and overworked. And yep. if you teach in college, you have no job security and you're a contractor. You don't even know if you're teaching next semester. It's tough. Right. Um, so I kind of transitioned into uh, more commercial work, not really by choice. I got mm-hmm. a job doing some like a very big commercial video for Michael Kors in New York and it was kind of a job that was too good to be true I had to take it you know Mm -hmm. it was a big opportunity and then from there I just kind of like spiraled out we moved to the Bay Area I had a lot of connections there who just gave me more and more and more commercial work so did you get pulled into commercial work just because you were in it or was it a driver because this seems like you're back to pursuing um, purpose and passion that we talk about. Yeah, I mean, so the commercial work is—it was fun, mm-hmm. you know. It, uh, especially whenever I was able to work with Michael, mm-hmm. it's really fun. Mm-hmm. We make a lot of art together, you know, personal films and things like that. Nobody really pays us for that, you know. Some grants have, but it's never, you know, you don't make the big bucks. You get a grant to pay for the film, you don't make any money. Um, so we just ended up doing corporate work together, which was really fun. And I even I actually did like videos for a for a large regional theater, like a Tony Award Tony Award winning theater in in Berkeley, which was great because I got to meet all kinds of celebrities and and really influential people and making this work that doesn't feel very corporate because it's not, um, but it still wasn't totally satiating. I guess I felt like um, I missed being pedantic. I missed feeling like I could impart on someone how much I loved or do love film and the moving image. How hard is it to be an artist and also then to realistically um, wrestle with making a quote-unquote living and then a future? Because a lot of people here listening, right, are have a pretty predictable path that they're on. And then there's the 401k, and then there's the, yeah, I know where my career is going to be. And now, granted, there are some fabulously, quote-unquote, economically successful. But mm-hmm. what, what sort of things go through your head? And you're not speaking for the world in, of artists, but from yours, what did it go through? No, I, I mean, I, I can't speak for everyone, but I do know a lot of people who mm-hmm. have the same conflicts. Uh, it's really impossible, actually. It's super difficult. I think probably if I... N- you know, you make choices and then you look back and you're like, oh, well, I, maybe that wasn't the right choice or maybe I should have. That's always the, easy to do when connecting the dots behind you, by the way. Right. Of course. Yeah. Right. And and I think my first like real full time job was at that theater. Mm-hmm. 
And I remember thinking like, oh, I can't make art if I'm here five days a week for eight hours. Like I can't, you know, I, I, and it's true. It's really difficult actually mm -hmm. to, to make your own work, especially if you work in film, which is a time-based media. And if I'm sitting at a computer all day editing, it's super hard to come home and be like, oh, let's edit that feature film we shot. So in the can, I have, you know, four shorts and a feature that have been there for four years because I just don't, I don't edit. I edit professionally. Um, but I think if I look back, you know, because that job was a non-for-profit and not corporate, it was actually probably a, a lot less competitive than 100% of other jobs that I might have. So um, I probably would have had much more flexibility to make the work there. I think now that I move forward and I'm older, I realize that it's, it's about uh, figuring out what are the sacrifices you're willing to make and understanding that the sacrifices are inevitable. Sure. You know, I'm not... I'm not going to inherit a million dollars right. and live off of that and be a, a eccentric. You know, that's right. not going to happen. And it's the same struggle, I think, that people who, let's just call it, in, in a white-collar job have as they need to go after their career. Mm -hmm. Not as much time with my kids, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Or my spouse or sig other. Absolutely. And there's that trade-off, right, that you've got to balance out. And what you always try and do is avoid that thing called regret downrange or sort of keep it as minimal as possible. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a big consideration. So, uh, And again, regret not being with the kids. And then if you spend time with the kids, I'm just right. using that as a proxy, right. then regret for not pushing your career where it could have went. Right, and, and, it's that and satiating that, right. that ambition that's innate right. to you. I mean, right. it's truly about, and we've talked about this since day one of me working here. Like, mm -hmm. The number one step in any career decision is self-reflection yeah. first. Yeah. Then you don't, you don't do anything until that point. And I think... The hardest part of this decision, even though I started to think about going into archive work when we were in the Bay Area because I befriended uh, the director of a film archive that I really love. And we would go all the time and I just, I think that place is like, like a paradise to me, mm -hmm. it's heaven on earth. And you know, I started asking her questions about how she got into this and it kind of planted like a little bug in my head three years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and truthfully, I really didn't think I would get into this program because it's, really competitive and that's the University of Amsterdam is a very you know well you have a leg up for most people because you have EU citizenship yeah. right so yeah. that's that's a nice I don't think that really helps me I think they prefer international students because they pay a but lot you, more oh I see yeah yeah but would you be able to as a student be able to go over there if you weren't of EU status yeah okay. I would just right. pay different fifteen thousand dollars more right yeah. <laughs> which is a lot, you know, right. going in. And, and my point is, you know, the biggest consideration I had to make is typically people who run archives or program film festivals mm -hmm. don't become millionaires. Right. You know, you're you're there is a ceiling on what you can earn. There is really no ceiling on what you could create. And I had to figure out, OK, what's that's that's the trade off. Ultimately, mm -hmm. like I, I will have hopefully uh a kind of creative freedom that most jobs don't afford you, and I will also be modest for the rest of my life. And I, I thought about that, and I thought, okay, well, considering that, you know, I, I am a vegan and I wear other people's clothes, like I don't really need a lot of stuff, so uh, maybe that's okay. Yeah. So as you went through that, and, and thanks for sharing a little bit of the dialogue that went on in your head and things like that. Um, was there a moment or a series of moments that triggered that you were on the dilemma of when or how or where, and then boom, boom, boom. Share with the audience 
the things that you explored personally that they may want to think about uh, that you either push away for years or you pull closer and what made you pull them closer that were trigger points? Well, so as a, as a rule, uh, if, you're an, if you're pursuing anything creative, I think the hardest part is to put yourself out there because when you get a rejection, it's kind of like a very personal rejection. You know, this, this is my thing I made and you're saying it's not good enough and I'm not good enough. You know, it's not the same as like, oh, you didn't like my spreadsheet, but I put my soul and you know what I mean? It's not the same. So, uh, all the CFOs are shaking their head. You yeah. They're like, you have no idea. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I probably don't cause I've never really done that, but, um, or fell in love with a spreadsheet. <laughs> no, yeah. I look at Excel as a very sort of, uh, anatomical thing. Anyway, uh, I, uh, the trigger what was it oh right um so i apply to a lot of stuff i apply to things all the time everywhere in the world always and i get very little of it almost none of it you know that's just the way it goes it's the chaos of this experience Mm -hmm. you know sometimes i'm surprised by the things i do get sometimes like the things that are more competitive that i think will never happen are actually the ones i end up getting um so i applied to a variety of grants and fellowships and programs just because I wanted to keep my career moving forward in whatever sense. Uh, and this, I really just wasn't thinking I was going to get it, actually. But uh, when I got in, I felt extremely confused and conflicted because it would, it's, it's total upheaval. You know, it's like a n- new world in every way. Every, everything in my life is now changing. So what? So I want to stay on that for a second. What advice can you give people who are afraid of that? Your advice, not right, not sage advice, but your advice. Uh, I've never regretted making scary decisions. Mm-hmm. I've never looked back on the big scary things. Why? Because they're fun, and I think they give you an opportunity to to look reflexively on yourself in a way that you really never can in any other circumstance. Mm-hmm. If it's a risky, you know, jumping into a relationship that scares you because it feels too intense, or if it's moving to a new place that scares you because you've never really spent time there, or taking a job offer impulsively, be, you know, scares you. Like I've never done any of those things and thought, oh, what a what a stupid decision. For some reason, it all kind of pans out in the end mm-hmm. um so i i mean i i probably have more faith than a lot of people what advice do you give to instinct and intuition on career moves well i <laughs> my, my brother who's a doctor would listen to this and be like don't take this person's advice because i got i operate a lot on instinct and intuition i think that that's uh i think i personally believe that i have strong instincts and 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 solid institution uh, intuition institution yeah solid intuition and so i i trust that a lot um but i think i have been feeling ambivalently about going to this program every single day up until we met with our professor for drinks in boston and i'd already like accepted the program told you i was going like wheels were super in motion and i was still feeling like why did i like is this the right choice uh and then i spoke to her and she was so insanely comforting. I mean, she's um, a very strict woman. She was my professor in undergrad and grad school, so she knows me probably better than she should. And I really thought she would be like, what is wrong with you? Like, stop going to school, just make it work. And that wasn't it at all. She was like, you know, I think this is a perfect choice for you. You 
are a strong writer, you like, you've always liked programming, you like community building, like this is good, this is a smart idea. Uh, and I think having her perspective and feedback changed everything. So probably that would be my big advice is uh, don't, don't make decisions in a silo. You know, right. I love asking for the opinions of other people. I really like, I, I operate on a census, right? Mm -hmm. I said that my, I trust my intuition a lot and my intuition is what sort of starts this decision-making sure. process, but the final like chapter is, is a chorus. There's so many people involved. There's, there's some credibility to that statement of your intuition is really the universe's way of telling you what you should do. Mm -hmm. And, and I, that, that sounds like a little bit about what you're saying too, right? Your intuition is what the universe has laid out for you. Mm -hmm. And if it feels that strongly, don't fight it. Right. Right. Because you shouldn't, you should be who you want to be and not who you think everybody else wants you to be. Yeah. And that's tough. I mean, I, I definitely would say that I fall into a category of overthinking and, and definitely like on the personality trait, what is it like introversion, extroversion, easygoing, neurotic, like I'm on the neurotic, like forget it. I'm like past, you know, do not collect money go to go, go. Right. yeah it's like it's too much i mean i really worry a lot so i think um any decision requires a lot of of introspection but i actually think that that the very first impulse is the one you should really spend the most time reflecting on like the impulse to apply in the first place to a job or to a school or to whatever the impulse to apply even to uh, you know write a stranger on a dating app that initial impulse is probably the closest to your real feelings, and that's what I would evaluate later when you're feeling scared or ambivalent. And then maybe ask yourself why, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's that's really important to understand is what is this representing, right? What what is it? What is this speaking out about? Yeah, you know, I'm reading this uh, Malcolm Gladwell book called Blink, which is amazing and wonderful, and it's a, a lot of it's actually about like. Um, what he calls thin slicing, which is taking very small moments to make very big decisions or to extrapolate on small moments to work intuitively or to do to figure out what your unconscious mind is already doing on its own. Mm -hmm. And, and I, that's why I think when it comes to these big life changing decisions, you've probably done a lot of thinking already in this thin slicing or this unconscious thought that you're not even aware of. And that happens before you make decisions, not really during or after. So that's why I'm saying the, the impulse to change your life or to be attracted to this new frontier, that's coming from a place that's fundamentally you in a way that you don't even know. Mm -hmm. And then the rest is like, what's my mother-in-law going to think? And you know, right. what, that, you know that, the rest that's, is everyone else. That, right. That, those are the fears. Right. Right. Worrying about what everybody else thinks. Right. So what, what would you, what guidance would you give to people? Because you just lived through it. Mm -hmm. And there's probably more people in your brain, maybe not in, 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 in real life, but in your brain that were like, oh my God, are you crazy? Oh, why would you do that? In my brain, yes. In the brain. But you just mentioned one that was like, no, go do it. Meanwhile, in mm -hmm. your brain. So what advice would you give to people who are worrying what others are going to think? It's so funny because, like I said, you know, up until my professor said it, I, it was just like turmoil all over the place. And I went, I went to my brother's wedding like a month ago and, and they were like, so what are you doing? What are, what are your plans? And I was like, well, I think I might actually go back to school. And they, nobody said anything, but in my mind, I'm hearing, 
what are you doing? You're 30 years old. You're going, like, you already have a degree. You have two degrees. Like, what? Stop. Like, what? This is insane. Meanwhile, nobody said anything. Nobody said anything. Right. Oh, Amsterdam's cool. Like, that's it. Right. You know? Like, what oh. did they really mean? Right, right. A hundred percent. Or like, oh my God, everybody pities me. Or I'm talking to my, my best Millennial. friend. Millennial. Right, totally. <laughs> and and my best friend, uh, you know, she just had a baby this year. She just bought a house in Reykjavik. Right. And she was like, I feel so old. I was like, yeah, me too. And she's like, it's just so weird being a homeowner and a... And a mom, and I was like, you feel old because you're doing things that indicate you are aging. I feel old because I'm doing things that feel too young. You know what I mean? Mm, but yeah. but she yeah. wasn't thinking that. Right. I just think that. That's totally right. my own right. uh, projection of what I, I should be. And I think one thing I, I try to remember as often as possible is that should is probably the most caustic, toxic, problematic word in the entire English language. If you're dating someone who uses the word should more than once a day, you are in a bad relationship and you should not be in it. Should, well, I just right, said should. Right. Shouldn't, but, shouldn't you, but, and what if, yeah. right? Those are all sort of dangerous, limiting mm-hmm. words, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. So you, did, are you doing anything special before you leave? Um, getting rid of everything I own. Are you? <laughs> yes, but also continually thrifting. I'm. It's like so compulsive. I'm like, oh, well, what if I find this... The, the Shangri-La at the thrift store. What if I find this one shirt that no one else will ever have because it's the last one on earth? So what are you taking with you? One, two bags of luggage? Um, I'm taking one suitcase and a carry-on and then my sister's going to bring a second suitcase to me and that's, that's it. it. That's it. I'm storing a suitcase with like heirloom items and like right. very precious irreplaceable things and another suitcase with hard drives at my sister's and that's it. Right. And so how are you going to create while you're there learning? Well, I always have uh, pen and paper because I do a lot of drawing. Well, I haven't recently, but I historically have done a lot of drawing. And I always have my 35 millimeter camera that will never, like that's in my carry-on. That's with me all the time. So those will be the primary. And if I have the free time to create, I should really look back on that hard drive with four unedited projects right. on it. You may want to get some closure on one of them. <laughs> Any of them, really, at this point, it's pretty embarrassing yeah um yeah and and we actually just had uh an art opening last friday here in west palm that went really well and we got a lot of footage from that and it kind of opened the doors for a few other projects that we might do before we leave oh hold on you just made me think of something what about your record collection oh my god trauma i'm not yeah we sold a bunch of them last weekend just like it's like your children I know, and and David's gonna take all of them because I'm not gonna DJ, and records are meant to be played, not you know stored. So, yeah, I know I might never DJ again. I doubt that. No, okay. I, I will, all right. but maybe not with records because it's really hard to live in a student hotel with records. Right, they call them hostels, don't they? Well, no, this one's a hotel, mm. but they just took like a like two or three floors of the hotel and because housing is incredibly competitive in Amsterdam. Uh, it's one Do you of have most... a roommate? No, I have a hotel room. Right, but it's your room. Yeah, okay. and it's subsidized by the, the school. So it's not, I'm not paying like hotel room rates every night for a year. I'm paying like a normal rent, right. but I'm living in a hotel room, which is kind of cool. And I think I've always wanted to do that, but it's also makes me feel old and inappropriate because I'm 30 and should I really be living in a hotel room? Anyway. Right. So... Before you sign off for mm. this show, what what could you share with the audience about early, mid, late career changes and just 
um, the thing, what would you want to leave everybody with? Let me just say that. What would you want to leave everybody with in your sign-off? You'll come back as a guest for sure, but mm. what would you leave everybody with? Um, you know, I remember when I first told my sister I was interested in this program, and she said, uh, don't do it. That's, that's a bad idea. You just keep keep working, like keep building your career, don't start over. And then I think there was like that that really intense scare where like, our president and the leader of the of North Korea were talking about maybe nuking each other for a second. And I was talking to her and she was like, I just want to tell you I've rethought everything. And I just want to know if you died tomorrow, would you be happier dying an archivist or a, or a video maker, like a, a freelance video maker? And I was like, well, an archivist. She's like, well, then just go, just go. We're all going to die. Just go. And it's funny that I think uh, when you take it to this extreme that is a little bleak and dark and she's, you know, she's having her own issues uh, with the political environment. That's her. Uh, but I think, you know, her logic was if it all ends tomorrow, what's the decision you wish you made or would you make if you could? Sure. And uh, that's probably just like a good way to make a lot of decisions, you know, like I'm lucky that my question is, should I change my career and not should I do this heroin on the table? But, you know, like I think if you're if it's don't like, shut all the doors. Yeah. You never know. Life's life's full of adventures. But um, I don't really have those inclinations. Thank God. But, you know, I think if if you're thinking in terms of what do I want to look back on and, and, and reflectively feel good about or if it all comes to a halt tomorrow, what do I wish I was doing today? Now, that's at least what I'm trying to use as a, a decision-making process now. Cool. Well, I'm going to let you take us into the back-end sign-off. All right. For the final time, this is On the Line. My name is Christina Kay. And I'm Joe Mullings, and I will try to hold down the ship while you're gone. Thank you. Be well, all. Bye. Bye.